Good morning, everyone. Okay, so let me just start in prayer here. Father, uh, again, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to your truth, and that you would sanctify us through your holy word. Amen. <clears throat> you know, some men have this uh, amazing ability to express their love through different ways. Some can express their love through poetry. Uh, you know, it's no big deal for them to piece together a, a wonderful sonnet for someone that they love. Uh, others can compose this a beautiful serenade that will like literally pluck at your heartstrings. Before I continue, though, ladies, don't get your hopes up. Okay, not all guys are talented in that way. Okay, and if, if for some reason your man is, please keep it to yourself. You don't want to set any precedents. Okay, but uh, there's this one certain loaded question that men fear. Guys, you all know what I'm talking about when I say this. It's when someone comes to you and says, tell me how much you love me. It's not that we uh, can't tell you how much we love you. It's that we fear that no matter how well we explain to you how much we love you, it's just going to backfire. Because we're not going to be able to articulate as well as we would hope so. And no matter how good I think my answers are going to be, it's not going to be as good as my wife was hoping it was going to be. It's not that we're not able to do it. It's just that women, for some reason, when they get talking, they, they, they can describe all these little things. It's because essentially they're thinking out loud. And guys, well, we kind of think inside, and then we give you this one statement. I love you. But behind that statement, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of heart in that statement. And we don't want to seem insincere and we use, use these what we call cliches, right? Because then she might think I'm insincere even though I mean it. She's going to think it's a cliche. The truth of the matter is that, you know, your man, he loves you. He just has a hard way of explaining it. But no matter if you're a man or a woman, we like to do little things for each other. Things to, to, to show our love for one another. You know, the old, action, uh, the old saying, actions speak louder than words. I could tell you that I love you, but if I don't show you that I love you, it's, it's very different. God has, on the other hand, he's used letters, he's used poetry, he's used songs, he's used all these different things in order to communicate with each individual here that you are loved. In fact, when it comes to the, to the matter of God's love, it can be demonstrated by choosing any portion of Scripture. You can begin right from the first verse in Genesis when it says, in the beginning God. You can go verse by verse, book through book, right up to the last statement in Revelation. I have to confess, though, that I don't always see the love of God in every verse that I read. Because my understanding of what love is is, is quite limited compared to what God's definition of love is. Thankfully, though, the Bible is God's declaration, and it's the only pure definition of what God's love is. And as we study his word and his love, we uh, come to realize just how immense his love actually is. It's way beyond my comprehension. 
Now, I want to look at a verse that I'm pretty sure and I trust that everyone here is familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, what the majority of the world may see as just a simple sentence, to us, it's this declaration of immense proportions. In essence, it comes by taking the entire word of God and then you boil it down to its most concentrated form and God delivers it to us in that one statement. I remember as a new Christian coming across this this verse and I was just blown away. I didn't know John 3.16 before I became a Christian. I came to this verse and I was blown away. You know, some people might think that this verse here is overly simplistic. Maybe even a cliché. But to us, this verse is central to our faith, to our doctrine of faith. If you turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we're going to begin reading there at verse 9. The Bible says, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John here is describing to us what the love of God truly is. He doesn't define God's love by our earthly standards. See, ours are based in most part on emotions and on a reciprocation of love. But to the contrary, God's love is unidirectional. It's not based on how we feel or how we behave towards him. And he loves everyone, not just the select few. Notice that John uses the word propitiation. The Bible describes that word as satisfying the wrath of God. And it is used for a very specific kind of sacrifice. And we need to understand that because there were many types of sacrifices that were to be offered in the Old Testament. The Old Testament propitiation type of sacrifice was given on the Day of Atonement. And this happened once a year. That's when the priest would take the blood of the offering and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He did this in order to atone for the sins of the nation. But still, even though he did that, a person wasn't automatically saved because of this propitiation type of sacrifice. And they were not automatically saved just because they were part of Israel, who is God's chosen people. It was a sacrifice that was 
there to satisfy the immediate judgment that was upon this collective people. So that way, each individual person could actually have the opportunity to turn away from their sin and come to God personally. And what we just read in 1 John chapter 4, that relates back to that beginning statement in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus is the propitiation type of sacrifice for the world. The Bible further says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is an amazing love. To love the very people that are continuously rebelling against you. And he's withholding his judgment so that they have the opportunity to come to him. And he wants them to spend eternity with him in heaven against the very people that are rebelling against him. And yet time after time, the people are ignoring the call of God. And they fail to understand just how much God is actually demonstrating his love towards them. He continuously loves them. He gives them chance after chance for them to come to him in faith. And meanwhile, you have some cult group like, say, the Westboro Church. Unfortunately, we've had the, uh, to see them on the news and stuff. They go around hating people. They go around telling people that God hates them. They hold demonstrations holding pickets. And they do this in the name of God. I'm quite happy to burst their bubble, though, to tell them that actually God loves the very people you guys hate. God loves you if you're a druggie. God loves you if you've had an abortion. God loves you if you're a homosexual. God loves you if you're an atheist and you don't even believe in God. Don't get me wrong, though. God despises all sin. And his judgment is upon sinners unless they repent and they turn to him. But yet he loves them nonetheless. So much so that every day he is withholding his judgment in order for them to have that, this opportunity to turn their lives and give their lives over to Jesus. And as followers of Jesus Christ... We don't have a problem loving atheists and druggies and so on. And non-believers, I find, are caught off guard when you don't condemn them. Don't get me wrong. We, we do confirm that the Bible says that we are sinners and that what they're doing is sin in the sight of God. But we are also quick to point out that, hey, I'm a fellow sinner. I'm just a sinner that's saved by grace. It's not the fact that I, I turned over a new leaf. It's all, it's all because I admitted to God that I sinned against Him, and because of that, He has forgiven me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Like I said, it's easy for me to, to you know, be loving to people that are like atheists, uh, homosexuals, gospelers, and so on, but personally, I have a, quite the difficulty loving people 
like in the Westboro Baptist cult church. Part of that is because they've maligned the character of God in such an unloving, pagan, demigod kind of way that some people also associate any Bible believer to that kind of a, of a mentality. And yet God has commanded me to love even them. I would have to say that the majority of quote-unquote real Christians, because they're not real Christians, don't have a problem loving sinners. Because, again, we're all sinners, right? I would even dare to say that some would go out and befriend sinners purposefully. Invest time in them in order for them to actually get to see the love of God. And that hopefully one day that they will turn and give their lives to Christ also. You know, as Christians, we've been given this, this ability to dispense what I would call a supernatural love. Because I know I'm not lovable, and for a Christian to love me, that's got to be supernatural. And yet sometimes we find it difficult to love our own brothers and sisters in Christ because they might rub us the wrong way. Yet in verse 11, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Notice John, he wasn't asking a question. He wasn't saying, shouldn't we be loving one another? No, actually what he's saying, it's a call to action. He's saying, we are to love one another. I think of it this way. If God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten to die on our behalf, should we not love one another in a way that is befitting to the action that he has done for us. You know, we aren't to love each other for what the other person has to offer for us. We know that, we know that as Christians, and most, most of the world would try to, to know that as well. We love each other because we have this mutual love of Jesus. And we love Jesus because he first loved us. And that's all that's needed. So when a member of our church family is hurting, we want to hurt with them. When things are going well with them, we rejoice. You know, we shouldn't be jealous of someone's blessings or start comparing each other's circumstances. Verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love of, that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So this portion of scripture kind of relates back to that second part, of John 3.16, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let that statement sink in. We hear it so often that we kind of forget about like the depth of this here. That whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. That starts the moment that you believe, but it never ends. Man, when I was doing my study, I have to tell you this, I came to this part of my study 
And I was awestruck. You kind of take it for granted. But when you really think about it, it just blew my mind. And I couldn't help myself. I had to stop what I was doing. And I just had to worship Jesus. I was listening to this song. Oh, man, wonderful song. It's by Phil Wicken called Stand in Awe. He writes, Who can know your thoughts? Who can grasp your ways? Who can match your goodness or deny your grace? You awake my soul, captivate my heart. O God, how great you are. What king would leave his throne, set his crown aside, for his own creation bear their sin and die? Unrelenting love, never-ending grace. O God, we praise your name and we stand in awe of you. You know, just reading this, you realize this is a spirit-filled testimony of the love of God. It's not just a profession of faith, it's a possession of it. Huge difference. And it can only come by believing the actual word of God. Just like the people that John was writing to. They heard it and then they believed it. And because of that, their faith it caused them to experience the love of God for themselves. Because God had demonstrated this now in the most spectacular way. I mean, he sent his only begotten son to die on our behalf. And the response that can come from this, I can only describe it as an unspeakable joy. You don't see many Christians with their face really long, when they're meditating on the fact that Christ has died for them and that they're going to spend eternity in heaven. But all too often I come across saints that have this paralyzing fear of where they stand in with God. They, I don't know what it is, maybe they, they think they're not performing well in their Christian walk or their Christian duties, but they have this paralyzing fear. They get discouraged. You know, they, they say things like, you know what, I don't sense the presence of God like I used to. Or I think God's mad at me. And then their relationship with Christ starts to suffer. And then their walk, it gradually deteriorates from where they began. And it's this all-too-common trap that I find believers will fall into. Sometimes they might get discouraged for a short little while, but sometimes they get stuck in this quagmire for like months or even years. But unfortunately, there's also some teachers that are propagating some bad information out there which just adds to this problem. But often when you dig into what's going on, you find out it's that they're actually trusting in their feelings more than they're trusting in the Word of God. And a byproduct of trusting your feelings instead of the Word of God is, is you have this kind of roller coaster faith. You're up and down, up and down, depending on how you feel that day. Contrary to that, if you believe in the Word of God, it will cause you to grow in faith, in knowledge, and in wisdom. But I want to clear up some confusion right here, though, because this is where part of it gets confusing. Is that The fact is, the Bible makes it quite simple. You are never going to be good enough to save yourself. The next part to that is, you are never going to be good enough to keep yourself saved. See, a lot of people say, they'll agree with me and say, yeah, yeah, I know, I'm not good enough to save myself. But then they start messing up in their walk and they think, all of a sudden, it's performance-based salvation again. 
And for those that get caught up in this trap of feeling like they just can't seem to be doing good enough to earn God's love, I've got two things I want you to remember. One, there is actually nothing you can do to impress God. And two, Jesus is enough. You know, some years ago, I have, I don't know if you have this too, I had a lot of Mormons knocking on my door. So some years ago, I started doing some research into apologetics to better reach them. I came across the testimony of a gentleman by the name of Micah Wilder. Micah was a Mormon that was on a missionary trip. And as he was doing typical stuff, he was going about his religious duties. He was trying to recruit people into his Mormon religion. One day he was trying to use his Mormon apologetics with a Christian brother. And this Christian brother, he didn't get into some pseudo-intellectual argument with the guy. You know, there's, there's always the one that just has to show you how much he knows. No, he didn't get into this, uh, argue the eschatological ramifications of the pseudo-doctrines of the Apocrypha based on Joseph Smith. He didn't get into any of that garbage. He just said, you know what, Micah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to read the Gospel of John as a child. See, an adult has these, uh, what I'll call, preconceived notions. Maybe they're a little jagged because life has taught them you need to distrust people. On the other hand, a child, he'll believe anything you say. I told my kids once that I wrestled against Superman and the deal was whoever lost had to wear their underwear on the outside of their pants. And they still believe me, so I'll tell them when they're about 18. And I said, by the way, who do you think showed him how to hide his, with his glasses, right, to not display who he truly was? Again, I digress. But so Mr. Wilder, he decided, you know what, I'm going to take him up on this offer. He started reading the Gospel of John as a child. And what he was noticing is he was challenged at his core because this was going against what his church was teaching him. The Gospel wasn't what he was led to believe. It was actually quite simple. It was faith in Jesus instead of in myself. So he came home after his missionary work, and as the custom is, the missionary gets with all their, their, their church friends, and they start telling them what, how the trip went. But instead of the typical details that these Mormons were used to hearing, he told them that during his missionary trip, he came across this Christian that challenged him to read the Bible as a child. He said that by doing so, he had to surrender his life to Jesus Christ. So he declared that, Jesus alone is enough. Imagine standing in front of all your Mormon peers and saying this. Because your whole family is tied into the church. He left everything that he knew. He chose to follow Jesus instead. No religion in the world can save you. Not even a Christian religion, because there's a lot of different kinds of religion that claim to be Christian. Not even a religion that's based on Christianity can save you. Only Jesus can save you. This man was so desperate to earn God's love, and then he came to realize that you can't earn God's love. God gives it freely. And Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. This is Michael Wilder. Now you could see him as you go online. He's actually, him and some ex-Mormon friends, they began this ministry called Adam's Road. And as you notice up there, the thing he goes back to over and over again, he goes, read it as a child. It worked for him, so he figures it's going to work for other people. And 
Mormons hear about this guy's testimony, so they go look for him, and then eventually what they do? They start reading it like a child, and then they convert to Jesus instead of to their Mormon religion. So we need to stop trusting in our feelings, and we need to start trusting what we read. With that being said, though, there is a place for fear, okay? And it's for those that are not saved. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So a proper fear of the consequences of rejecting Jesus should cause a person to turn to God in repentance and faith. And then they can actually appreciate just how deep the love of God is. And I don't think that you know the love of God if you still have, if, even if you've made a decision and you still have a fear of judgment. The Bible says, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It continues, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's like I said earlier, God's love is way beyond my comprehension. But when someone asks me, do you believe that God has, loves the world? I have to say my answer would be yes. Because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus chose to be the atonement for the world. Which means he gave his life for the world. Which means he loves the world. And when someone turns to God in repentance and faith, then they become the whosoevers that the Bible is talking about. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At this point, Jesus becomes a substitutionary sacrifice, which is different than the propitiation sacrifice. Henceforth, God the Father no longer sees them as a sinner now, because now, if they've made that commitment to Jesus, if they've turned from their sin, turned to Jesus, he sees them as clean because he sees them through the blood of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, sometimes, believers, we need to be reminded where we stand with God. We start living this defeated life when we should really be living a victorious life. And I believe that if Christians knew just how much God loved them, that it would dramatically change their, their way of living, the way they, they see things. This world, I believe, would be turned upside down if we could grasp the idea that no matter how my walk is going with God, he's not going to love me any less or any more. He can't love me any more than he already loves me at this very moment. And the Bible explains why in the 17th chapter of John, in verse 23, 
It says, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So as a Christian, if you have ever been plagued with doubts about how much God loves you, Jesus just told you right here. Okay? He says that the love that God the Father has for Jesus is the same exact love that God the Father has for you as a believer. And the verse, you notice, it ends there. It doesn't say, so long as you do this. It doesn't say that. It's not based on our... Uh, how we behave, or what we can do, or what we can't do. You know, like most Christians, when I became a, a believer in Jesus Christ, I realized there was no such thing as luck. I realized there was no such thing as uh, chance. You know, before that, it'd be like knock on wood. Now I'm just like, wow, that's just so stupid, knocking on wood. What's that going to do for anything? So I don't believe in chance. So I don't think it's a coincidence that I came across this story from Dwight L. Moody as I was putting this message together. This was written by his son. He talks about this time when Moody went to England to preach and that he met this gentleman by the name of Henry Morehouse. Henry approached him and he said, hey, would, I, would you mind if I went to preach at your church in Chicago one of these days? So Moody shared some pleasantries with Morehouse, but he kind of left it at that. Not long after that, Moody receives this telegram so this was a while ago, before my, my car phone. He receives a telegram from Morehouse. And he says, Morehouse says, hey, I made it to America. I'm on my way to Chicago. I want to come and preach for you. So Moody was leaving on a Friday. So Morehouse was on his way in. He figured, I'll have Morehouse give the message. Moody returned on that Saturday. So it wasn't gone long. Moody, when he returned, he asked his wife if she and the congregation liked uh, Morehouse's message. She said, yeah, we like him very much. So he asked, what was he preaching on? She said, he preached two sermons on, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So on Sunday morning, Moody came in and he figured, I'm going to listen to what Morehouse has to say. So he preached his third sermon. This time he preached it on for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Moody had this to say about Morehouse. He worked his way through Genesis to Revelation, proving in all ages that, the, that God loved the world. Sunday night he continued to expound John 3.16 and for six nights he had preached on this one text. Moody said that on the seventh night, Morehouse got up and every eye was upon him. He began by saying, Beloved friends, I have been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find any so good as the old one. So let's go back to that third chapter of John in the 16th verse. Moody wrote, I remember the end of that sermon. Morehouse said, My friends, for a whole week I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven, I'd ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love the Father has for the world. All he could say would be, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Moody, who sat there and listened to this man preach on John 3.16 for a whole week, said this. He wasn't a new Christian, speaking of Moody. He's been preaching for a while. This is what he had to say. I never knew up to that time that God loved me so much. He says, This heart of mine began to thaw. I could not keep back the tears. I just drank it in. I tell you, there is one thing that draws above everything else in this world, and that is love. I took up the word love, and I do not know how many weeks I spent in studying the passages in which it occurs, until at last I could not help loving people. I had been feeding on love for so long that I was anxious to do everybody good that I came into contact with. I got full of it. It ran out of my fingers. You take up the subject of love in the Bible, you will get so full of it that all that you will be able to do is open your lips and a flood of the love of God flows out. So as we conclude our time this morning, let's just take a moment and examine our hearts and ask God to give us a better understanding of His love. Because no matter how much I try to explain it, it just it won't come through the way it would if you spend time with God yourself. And if for some reason you have not come to know the Lord Jesus as your own personal Savior, He wants you to settle your issue with salvation right now. Because He wants you to have this personal relationship with Him so that you can know for yourself what the love of God is like. You know, He's been waiting for everyone for so long I was 33 when I got saved. So for every person, he waits so long and so patiently and so lovingly for us to come to him. But I know we fall into this trap of thinking, you know, I need to earn God's love. The thing is, no matter how much you try, you can't earn it. Because it's freely offered. Again, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, God is love and Jesus is the love of God. And he gave himself for you as that perfect demonstration of that love. Let's pray. Father, we can be so quick to forget just how much you truly love us. Lord, we ask for wisdom and for understanding, to be able to get a better grasp on how great your love is. And Lord, that we would understand that it's unconditional. And may our love for one another, Lord, may it be just like that sweet-smelling fragrance of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we can remember how much you loved us, what you've done for us. In closing, just the theme verse that Mark has been sharing with us this morning. For you love the world so very much that you sent to only the God and the Son for each and every one of us. And we praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.